This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. The end of the Pennsylvania General Assembly's two-year session is near, with just a few more weeks left on the schedule after Labor Day. So, for this episode, I talked with Elizabeth Randall, ACLUPA's legislative director. Liz talks about some of the legislation that lawmakers have considered, including reforms to policing and probation. She grades the legislature on how it handled several civil liberties issues, and she provides insights into what life is like as the ACLUPA lobbyist in Harrisburg. To learn more about the bills ACLUPA has worked on during the 2019-20 legislative session, visit aclupa.org slash legislation. This conversation was recorded on July 24th. Well, Liz, there are many issues I want to ask you about, but first, I want to ask you about your life as the ACLUPA lobbyist. You did advocacy before you got here. You worked on some other issues. Um, You've been doing this for us for more than three years now, and it has been, frankly, one of the most turbulent times in American politics in our lifetimes. What should people know about what it's like lobbying on civil liberties at the Pennsylvania General Assembly? How would you describe the environment there, particularly through your lens as ACLUPA lobbyist? Uh, yeah, you and I were describing some of and trading some of our war stories from the time that you spent uh, for many years prior to me in, this, uh, in the same position. But, you know, I would say this. It, Certainly in the times that we are currently living in, you know, the ACLU, I think, has become even more so a trusted and respected, legitimate stakeholder in a lot of these questions as it relates to civil liberties. And I think that means that not only do our constituents, our supporters, people in Pennsylvania look to us on a host of issues, but it also means that we do carry some degree of legitimacy for our expertise and our perspective on questions that the legislature grapples with. That being said, given the fact that the questions that are being, the issues that are currently facing us are so significant and have been increasingly heightened recently, it means that the, we are aware of the consequences of what happens in pieces of legislation, should they get enacted, we are aware of what the real world implications of those decisions are, how they affect the people who are directly impacted by what is in these bills, um, which sometimes leads us to take either unpopular positions or to be strident in our either advocacy on behalf of or in our opposition to some pieces of legislation and or provisions that are in those bills Um, That may make it a bit, you know, some people might say we are a little bit difficult to deal with. Um, I don't know that that's it, but I do think um, we tend to be very clear, however, in what it is that we are focusing on. If we oppose something, it's usually something that is very specific that we believe is not only not just contributing to reform, but that is actually creating more obstacles or making a process more dangerous uh, or worse than the process we were trying to reform in the first instance. And so I feel as if, you know, the environment can be certainly challenging. Um, I also find it though exciting because depending on what the issue is, sometimes I get to work with 
very different sort of groups of legislators because not, you know, our, our umbrella of civil liberties covers lots of things, lots of issues. And so we have people on both sides of the aisle who are, who are better and worse at those at varying times. So I'd say it's a little bit of a mix of both. Yeah, and it's really interesting insight. You know, I feel like there are so many, there are personalities to manage in the legislature. And many of the folks in the legislature have varying interests, to be perfectly frank. It's not, obviously folks go into this kind of work because they want to serve their community. But at the same time, people have aspirations too. They have, um, it's almost like, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a, an image issue for every member of the legislature because every two or four years they have to go before the voters. Um, and to be perfectly frank, there are some members of the legislature, specifically on the Democratic side, who have lost their seats over the last couple of election cycles, uh, in part because of positions they took on civil liberties issues. Right. So, and I think that our, we ultimately have to be dedicated to our mission. Our, one of the things I saw uh, at the Capitol is too many advocacy groups, I think, are too willing to um, placate members of the legislature. Right. Um, and it gets them away from their mission or what they're advocating for. Um, and I think that that's part of our reputation is that we are absolutely 100% dedicated to our mission and specifically, and to get more detailed about it, the people who are impacted by these issues. We're not, we're not there to serve legislators. We're there to serve the people who are impacted by our issues. That's right. No, and I think that you raise a good point even with that, Andy. I think that's not only, I think, are we true to many of those principles, but that we are true to them in, to the extent that we will also support that the partisan nature of whoever might be supporting or advancing a piece of legislation, if, it, if we find that we believe it's important uh, or a critical change that we will support, like Representative Seth Grove recently had his transparency, but retweeted our position statement and called out and said like, well, the ACLU is supporting this. We don't, and alternately, if it's a Democrat who's supporting something that we think is bad or dangerous or rolls the, the uh, rolls reform backwards, we are just as comfortable sort of taking, um, taking those positions and that it very rarely, I mean, I would say never, um, do partisan politics come into play when we are taking those positions. So it puts us in the, in the sort of odd, I think we've both heard from legislators that they appreciate the fact that we will both support and or oppose legislation sort of regardless of who, which party or which legislator is, um, is behind it. But so they appreciate our consistency, I think is a long way of, of saying what, um, but at the same time, it also means that we're not just consistent in terms of our position, but that we're consistent in our commitment to those principles and values and the people that we represent. So let's get into some of the issues, and we'll start with a bill that just passed the state Senate on July 15th, SB 14. This bill and a similar bill, House Bill 1555, make alterations to procedures and practices in Pennsylvania's probation system. So we, ACLUPA, supported the bill as introduced, but then dropped our support and actively opposed it after it was amended in committee. 
So can you give us the bullet points of the two different versions of the bill? What were the key provisions that made the original bill so good? And why is the current version so bad that we're actually opposed? Yeah, this is one of the most disappointing uh, moments, I think, of this legislative session. I'd say, so first, uh, the, both Senate bills were really, or I'm sorry, both probation bills, both in the House and the Senate, were focused on making very critical changes to the probation system in Pennsylvania. I'd say the core change that both of them advanced was to cap the amount of time that someone can be sentenced to probation. I think from that point is where almost all the other evils of Pennsylvania's probation system flow. And to not, we are one of the very few states in the, in the nation that does not limit the amount of time somebody can spend on probation. Uh, in Pennsylvania, you can spend years, if not decades, on, on probation. And so from that point forward, there are a lot of other things that um, allow incarceration, you know, that without any of those caps, you have a lot of additional problems that we also attempted to change. So I would say in short order, both bills in many ways um, uh, place some limits on, place hard caps on probation sentences. Uh, it eliminated ways that judges will sentence people to probation, whether stacking charges, so adding two charges so that you get two sentences of probation so that you get multiple years. Um, also splitting a sentence where sometimes judges will sentence someone to probation after they've finished a period of incarceration. Um, and then providing different mechanisms to get people off of probation early. There were some differences in the House and the Senate bill. So those were some of the, I would say, probably the top line changes that we were looking for in both of these bills. The House bill was amended first, and the amendments to that bill were sort of used as the baseline for the changes that were made in the Senate. And the, what's unfortunate is that it, both of them represented and reflected a complete overhaul of any of the changes, which led to removing all, there are none of the original reforms that remained for, in the bills uh, for the most part. Um, especially the ones that I mentioned. And then following from that, it, it actually makes parts of the probation process worse in Pennsylvania. I'd say the, the two main changes that do that, I, I'm gonna speak now specifically on the Senate bill that just passed on the floor of the Senate. Um, one is that it does what, it makes it easier to incarcerate someone after they've had their probation revoked. And it also creates a, a really worrisome new type of probation called administrative probation that is specifically set up to keep people on indefinite probation if they have not paid 100% of their restitution. Um, and that would include everybody, but also most specifically, um, people who are too poor to pay those restitution payments. And so, you know, again, this goes back to um, sort of our earlier question, I think, um, you know, this bill, what's, what's awful about both versions is that it really guts both bills of the most important critical changes that are needed, and, um, but then also makes some alarming changes to the, current, to the current statute that make risk making the probation worse in Pennsylvania. And I should mention, too, that since we've mentioned the House bill, that bill is out of committee but has not yet had a floor vote in the House. You know, that provision about restitution is just so shocking when you consider 
the atmosphere and the talking point in the legislature about bipartisan criminal justice reform and the impact of the criminal justice system, the criminal legal system, I should say, on people of limited income um, is such a foundational part of the problem with the criminal legal system, particularly in Pennsylvania, but really around the nation, that to allow that in there and for advocacy groups and all 50 members of the Senate to say, oh yeah, that's fine, is just horrifying. No, I mean, and I think, I'll pull back, I think you're, you're good at focusing on how that will affect in the real world people who uh, are indigent who can't afford to p- make those payments. I would say, if you want to talk about the big, let's pull back to the 30,000 foot view, which is not only does this bill not cap or limit probation, which it did in the original bill, uh, nor does it provide opportunities to take time off of your probation sentence. So it eliminated those provisions, early termination or you know, getting an educational degree to take some time, months off of your probation sentence. But it now proactively sets up a new pathway to remaining on probation indefinitely until you have paid 100% of your restitution. The way it currently works, just so that we're clear here, if your, term, if your probation is terminated, you still owe that money. And what happens is, is that in most counties, it works differently from county to county, but that they will terminate your probation and convert those payments to a civil judgment. So if you don't make the payments, you can be held in contempt of court. Um, so there is an enforcement mechanism, um, but you are not held under criminal supervision indefinitely. And I'll also just add as a, as a bit of a like, last kicker, the legislature in 2018 amended the statute for restitution payments to allow corporate entities to claim and to collect restitution. So you're talking about keeping even people who can afford to make those payments. Um, let's say you owe $50,000 to a Rite Aid you know, or Walmart. Uh, they, they, their insurance has covered it. You're on probation indefinitely until those payments are made. And so you know, I think um, it not only disproportionately affects, there's no protection for people who are, um, who are indigent, who cannot afford to make those payments, uh, but at the same time, it now creates, they've added a new mechanism that keeps people on probation for an interminable amount of time, just until the only criteria being whenever you make, you pay off your restitution 100%. It's crazy. So what's your response to people who say that this bill is not perfect, but compromises had to be made to get something done? I mean, honestly, I think, I'm not sure what the something is in the something rather than nothing category (laughs) that is worth supporting this bill. I think this has been, for me at least, there's a difference in how I viewed what happened with this bill being in some ways different from how we see most bills. We all know that our perfect ideal introduced version of a bill rarely, I mean, it never comes out looking. It never gets passed in the same way it went in. We know that. Mm -hmm. And that we are always on board to negotiate bill language. This actually is not just a question of the perfect, you know, that we're trying to allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good. This is um, a, uh, I don't know, with some of the provisions that are, that are making probation worse, I'm not sure how some organizations or legislators believe that the the individual good things that might have been, there are some good elements in the bill, 
um, in both bills, but in my estimation, not enough by any stretch of the imagination to overcome some of the damage that it does, or just the absolute collapse and failure to reform any of the real reasons why probation is a major problem in Pennsylvania. And I'll just wrap it up by saying, if you listen to the floor vote in the Senate, Senator Dave Arnold, who was a former, um, a former district attorney in Lebanon County, now the sitting senator representing that, um, representing that area, he, he, was, he said, well, this might, everyone's talking about this being a first step. He views it as the last step. And I think anybody who is familiar with the legislature knows that if you pass a piece of reform legislation, everyone always says it's the first step. And we actually know it is the last step at least for five, 10 years. They will not revisit this issue and they'll move on to something else and claim that they have made some historic you know, advance in reforming probation. And in this case, nothing could be really further from the truth. So I also want to ask you about policing. Obviously, there has been a lot of focus on policing in the last uh, two months. Uh, you know, there are activists and folks in the Black community who have been focused on policing for decades, frankly. But in the last two months since the murder of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis, it's really come to the fore. You know, I've been observing the legislature in one form or another for 18 years. And last month, uh, in one of the most dramatic moments that I've ever seen, members of the Legislative Black Caucus took over the rostrum, which is the podium where the Speaker presides in the State House, And they refused to step down until the Speaker committed to running bills to reform policing practices. Uh, it was compelling and disruptive and absolutely necessary. But once bills started moving in response to that action, we at ACLUPA were considerably less impressed. Tell us about those bills. So there were four bills that kind of rise, were bubbled up to the surface as a result of the negotiations that legislators were having both in the House and then subsequently in the Senate with leadership, um, two of which have passed and are now have been enacted by the governor, uh, and two are still sitting in House Judiciary. Uh, the Senate bills, have neither of those have passed yet. And so... You know, we were neutral on three of those bills. They were lukewarm, uh, to be generous. Um, but again, usually if we're neutral on something, uh, it means that they, they didn't create any bad problems. They didn't make anything worse, um, but they were pretty lackluster. Um, and I, I do say that respectfully because I don't want to diminish from uh, the strength of what that takeover consisted of and the intent and the urgency behind the, the asks. Um, you know, that they, they only have as much power as they're able to, to get with them, you know, not being in the majority in this case. And so that being said though, there were two bills. Um, the ones that have been enacted were, um, one uh, allows for and provides for PTSD screening for police officers um, and also includes some requirements for implicit bias training and also child abuse training. Um, which that was good, that's fine, um, and, and necessary in some cases, although we have some concerns about the effectiveness of implicit bias training at this point. Um, but, uh, and then the, there was one that we thought does have some very good foundational elements. Uh, it does create a background. So this was a combination of two bills um, by Harry Reedshaw and Representative Chris Rabb um, that provides for background checks for police officers 
um, as well as creating an accessible database that is not, however, publicly accessible, but it's an, a database that would collect um, instances of police misconduct and disciplinary actions so that um, the intent being to prevent police departments from hiring uh, or for not knowing, which is currently the case, whether or not they may be hiring an officer from another department who's had a history <clears throat> of complaints uh, or misconduct on his or her record. Um, the two remaining bills um, that are in, that are currently sitting in House Judiciary, both Senate bills, um, one um, what is SB 1205, which, you know, they refer to it as a chokehold ban. It is not. It just limits chokeholds in instances where you, uh, where the officer is not intending to use deadly force. So pretty much you can still kill, a police officer is still legally allowed to use a chokehold to kill a person. Uh, they just can't use it if the intent is not, if there's no justification for use of deadly force. So it doesn't ban them outright. So, uh, and, and uh, yes. That, yeah, that sounds really convoluted. Yes, well, I mean, and I think it's, it's a way to make it sound like chokeholds have been addressed when in fact, I don't know how, so effectively what they're saying is um, right now, or that moving forward, you can't use a chokehold unless the, the situation calls for or would justify deadly force. Uh, if you want to use, if you're able to use and justify using deadly force, you can use a chokehold. So, uh, and it also, so it was, this wasn't a chokehold situation, but a situation right. like George Floyd in Minneapolis, would not be there was that there, there would be, there was no justification there for deadly force. Nobody was in danger. That's right. Um, and so that kind of situation would fall under this bill, I guess it would be banned. Yes. I mean, it, so let's say for example, the officer had used a chokehold on George Floyd in that instance, that would be a not an unjustifiable use of a chokehold because it was not a situation that justified the use of deadly force. The murder of, of uh, Eric Garner in Staten Island That's right. also, also comes to mind where there's no apparent danger um, and yet a chokehold was used and Eric Garner died. And that's, and look, and I will say this, all of this, and we probably will mention this at some point, but, um, the, it's important though to realize that all of these changes, particularly ones that relate to use of force, are difficult if not, um, they're not meaningless, but they're limited if we do not change what our current statutory justifications are for the use of force in any case or use of deadly force. And so in each of these instances, you would need to look at the state's statutory language that tells you whether or not a situation like Eric Garner or George Floyd were instances that justified by those state statutes, deadly force. I would hope not, but I don't know that that's always clear. So, I mean, I think they're kind of putting the cart, the, our legislature is putting the cart before the horse in terms of trying to make changes to either reporting. So in this case, this chokehold, this limiting of, of chokeholds um, in SB 1205 also included requirements that each police department adopt a use of force policy, which for the most part, I think most police departments do have that, um, but really provided very little guidance as to what to put in there. Um, and then, uh, and so in the absence of having changed our use of force statute, it's, it's trying to make changes on a flawed, based on a flawed statutory definition. 
Um, and then the one we are opposing one of them, uh, one of these bills, SB 459, um, which would require reporting of use of force incidents. It is so unbelievably limited in the amount, the information that is collected on use of force incidents. It includes no demographic information, so you won't be able to tell. It's really an aggregate. It's compiling the total number of cases that were use of force incidents that resulted in serious bodily injury or death uh, throughout the Commonwealth and are just totaled. And then it's a report that's sent to the legislature and the attorney general. And so I don't know what you're supposed to do. It's data that has no applicable, there's no, would be no action item based on that, that amount of information that is being collected. It's, it's so appallingly weak and vacant of important critical information that I don't think that having that data will help anyone make any better decisions, not just people on the ground and people looking for, to change some of this, but I don't even know how legislators would be able to use that as actionable information to make better and more precise decisions about how to change certain elements, including our use for statute. So, right. So that, that report has so little data and then it's not even available to the public, right? That's right. Well, there's, here's the thing. So I think, so the bill sponsor, um, Senator Jay Costa, um, had said publicly on the record that he was, he believes that the information is public um, because it's given to the legislature. Uh, but when the, uh, when the reporter went back to ask, oh gosh, now I'm forgetting who it was. Uh, but when they went back uh, to ask if that was the, the case, is for, I'm sorry, PSP, the uh, Pennsylvania State Police is the one assembling the information. They asked the, the um, state police whether or not the report is public and they said no. And the thing is, Andy, as both you and I know very well, if it doesn't say that it's to be made publicly available explicitly in, in a piece of legislation, I don't assume that it's public. Um, and it does not say that. So it just, we assume because maybe it's given to the Attorney General and the legislature that it should be public, but in nowhere in the bill does it explicitly require that it is publicly disclosed. So. You mentioned having to approach and, and deal with the uh, use of force statute. Uh, that leads into something else I want to ask you, which is, is there something particular you think the state legislature and or, and the, and or the governor uh, can do to seriously tackle violence and racism in policing? I mean, look, I, I think it is such a, there are a lot of, um, there are so many ways to approach that question. I will say that I think some of the most significant and important work in many ways is being done at the local, the municipal level as, as uh, communities are addressing the relationships and the specifics of how they are holding their own police departments accountable. But I will say, I'll just underscore the fact that I think Pennsylvania is in desperate need of reforming our, the, the underlying part of the statute that, uh, that defines justifiable use of force and justifiable use of um, deadly force. And that following from that, that's what gives us any ability to hold police officers criminally accountable. And so the weaker that statute is, the harder it is, or more confusing that the statute is, there's a very specific confusion in terms of the use of the word or or and, in the statute that, that we believe was probably one of the major reasons why, if you recall, the, um, the killing of Antoine Rose in East Pittsburgh a few years ago um, ended up in the acquittal of the police officer because of the confusing way that that statute is written. And so 
that it's that statute that gives us the ability to hold police officers account criminally accountable. And then following from that, one of the things I've been saying, and we've been saying this a lot over um, the past couple of years, is to, um, you know, I think a lot of us think of the beginning step of the criminal legal process is starting with police. I would say that it starts with the legislature. And one of the things that happens is that, you know, the legislature is the one that creates all these new crimes. They are giving police officers the live, you know, the, the raw material and the fodder of the things to enforce. The problem is there's so many things that they can enforce that at the end of the day, they, it becomes discretionary. So now police get to decide who to hold, like who to enforce this law against, which communities, which individuals. And so the more things that the police have at their disposal, um, we've over-criminalized our system. And if legislators could just put their pens down and stop passing legislation that either creates new crimes, uh, increases penalties, um, and gives police more reasons to interact with and more points of contact between police officers and members of the community, uh, then I think we would, we would at least have a good starting. So what they could do is they don't have to do anything other than to stop what they're doing. They don't have to reform anything, just, just knock it off for a bit. That would be great. So related to that, in October, we released a report called More Law, Less Justice. We actually did an episode of the podcast on it, which lis listeners can go back and check out. That report showed how the legislature and multiple governors, including Governor Wolf, have massively bloated the crimes code in Pennsylvania. In 1972, there were less than 300 crimes on the books in PA. By 2010, that number was over 600. And by 2019, that number had grown to more than 1,500. So just in a nine-year span, the crimes code has grown by more than 150%. So based on what you just said, <laughs> I guess it's safe to say that our report did not uh, deter legislators from expanding the crimes code. Oh, yes. I mean, sure. we were very effective in that. And uh, they, they ceased and desisted uh, immediately upon receiving and reviewing a report. No, I mean, I think, um, you know, as I look back on this past session, you know, there were a number of bills that we were tracking. We track a lot of bills every session. There are ones that we, that when they start to move or show some activity that kind of rise to the surface. And so among sort of the scores, the dozens and dozens that we track, there were about 20 some odd bills that were kind of worrisome for us, some of which did get enacted. But of those 20, about 15 of them all fell into this category. They either created new crimes, duplicated crimes, um, increased the penalties or enhanced uh, the, the grading on some of, you know, raising something from a misdemeanor to a felony. And so, and then shockingly, I mean, it's not just that we're over-criminalizing things, of those bills, there were, I was trying to kind of do a quick uh, quick review before we started talking, Andy, but my last count, there were at least six bills that would have re-established mandatory minimums. I mean, we are so in the dark age. Mandatory minimums has been universally panned and debunked repeatedly within the most like, you know, professional circles of people who study the criminal legal process. They're just ineffective. They're a huge waste of money. They don't serve as a deterrent. They don't make anything safer. And yet we are just obsessed with them. These were bills that just were, and 
really the, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative just was able to squeak in one mandatory minimum in there, you know, because they can't now, I think they're going to have difficulty passing mandatories, you know, as a singular standalone bill. So now they just have to insert it into other decent bills or some reform bills so that they, and so when I say that, no, they have not changed their behavior and I think they are still on the same sort of reckless, ineffective path of, of trying to resurrect sort of zombie <laughs> penal, you know, penalties in the, yeah. in the form of mandatories that is just absurd at this point. And we should be clear, the Republicans have the majority, but there are a lot of Democrats that go along with what you're describing. And some who introduce them on their own. I mean, who yeah. are the prime sponsors of reestablishing mandatory minimums? Absolutely. And I think sometimes it depends on what the offense is. And so people, if, you know, if it's something that they really care more about, they're like, absolutely, this would be completely justifiable. You know, for us, it's like, it's no, even if it's for a crime that we find, you know, that would be really morally, I mean, we take some tough positions. And that means if we know that this is, is not something that works, it doesn't work no matter what, how awful or um, obscene or grotesque of the offenses. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And so we need better, better policies and not just, you know, talking points. So we spent a lot of time talking about criminal legal issues, but obviously the world of civil liberties uh, goes beyond that. So I do want to ask you about a few other things. Uh, let's do a, a lightning round. I want you to give me a grade A through F on how the legislature is doing on each of these topics. And you should probably say a sentence or two or three about why you're giving these grades. Okay. <laughs> All right. You, you ready? I'm ready. All right. Voting rights. I'd say B plus. We passed a huge uh, election reform bill earlier in the year that I think did set us up for um, some of the unanticipated um, emergencies at following the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak. But there is still a little bit of work to be done to kind of tweaking some of the language in that to ensure that we give counties the resources um, and clarifications that we need to affect a seamless and hopefully eventless election in November. Reproductive rights. Oh, that's always an F, Andy. It's always <laughs> F. Um, yeah. So there was um, yet again a abortion ban um, that would have criminalized terminating a pregnancy following a fetal diagnosis of Down syndrome. And it, fortunately, it did pass, however, and got to the governor's desk and he thankfully vetoed it. That was one among many different attempts to roll back reproductive rights in Pennsylvania and, you know, continue the onslaught of just the, the chipping away the death by a thousand, a thousand slices or bills in this case. So LGBTQ and T equality and discrimination. You know, I'm going to have to say that they, there's uh, like consistent absenteeism. <laughs> so I don't even know. I mean, we might give them a great, they've done nothing. I mean, it's the, I say they, there are legislators um, who have, particularly uh, Representative Dan Frankel, who has for decades uh, at this point introduced um, the non-discrim uh, proposal that would prevent discrimination. Most people, I think, in Pennsylvania think that it's currently illegal, that, we, that, um, that people have protections against being discriminated against, both in housing and the workplace, against public accommodations, in addition, against uh, being discriminated against based on their um, their sexual orientation or gender identity, and that is not the case. This is a pretty straightforward bill, and for whatever reason, it is just always languish every single session, and here we are again with it not having been passed. 
or considered for that matter. And just as a little teaser, I anticipate the next episode of the podcast is actually going to be on this topic. Um, Naima Sanchez, our transgender justice coordinator, and uh, Mary Catherine Roper, our deputy legal director, are going to come on and talk about the recent Supreme Court decision and what it means for Pennsylvania and and what it means uh, for this bill. Perfect. Last one, civil liberties and the response to COVID-19. That's tough. There was a couple of, um, I'd say maybe, I'm going to give that a mixed uh, I might have to give it a C, B minus, C plus, B minus. There was some legislation that we were, that still has not passed, but, you know, potentially still on the table that would have affected uh, some privacy protections that would have shared personal identifying information of, um, I think it was, S, it's SB 1110 that would share a really startling amount of personal, personally identifying medical information with first responders, law enforcement, um, and other entities but it, only within the context of an emergency declaration that has to do with a uh, contagious disease. So it's limited in that sense. So some issues there, um, there was a very, there's a very good transparency bill um, that we are concerned that the governor that passed both the House and the Senate unanimously that would ensure that right to know requests during a um, disaster declaration are still responded to. I mean, our position is like precisely in the moment when you have expanded executive powers is the time when you need the best access to some of that information and to sort of shut that down as has been the case recently since the beginning of this pandemic, that's a problem. So we supported Representative Groves, Seth Groves legislation and we are concerned, we've been hearing that the governor may veto that bill. So there's sort of a mixed, mixed result there. All right, so let's wrap up by doing some fill in the blank. <laughs> uh, the one bill in the legislature that you want passed right now is? So I'll just say, I sort of interpreted this quickly as, um, you know, if uh, bills that were really great that never sort of made it to the surface a bit. Uh, Representative Dan Miller has a really good bill, House Bill 1952, that would address and sort of standardize the way that fines and costs are um, assessed and collected in Pennsylvania in ways that would really help people who um, are living in poverty and the th right at that threshold. So it's pretty, pretty fantastic, but... That's, I would love to see that pass. The best defenders of civil liberties in the House and Senate are? This is a really tough one. Um, I'd say on balance. To, if you need to name more than one, go ahead. Okay, all right. Because <laughs> so, inevitably you'll probably leave somebody out. But. So, well, that's, oh, for sure. Well, look, and I think, you know, as we, many of our listeners might know that depending on what the issue is, we have some, some people who are, um, who are better, uh, but across the board in terms of good on most of our issues, generally speaking, uh, I'd say probably in the House, definitely Representative Dan Miller, uh, Representative Chris Rabb, and Representative Dan Frankel, I think are probably some of our strongest. I know I know that I'm leaving people out, but I would say consistently, we have some good, good support from those representatives for sure. And then I would say, you know, in the Senate, Representative Art Haywood has always been a very very good ally on those issues and fairly and pretty consistent. Yep. Senator um, already would. Yep. So, yeah. So that's, I would say that there, but look, I think there's also a lot of new legislators coming in. And so some of this is, you know, I'm sort of defaulting a bit to representatives and senators who we've worked with, but I think there's given the new batch, yeah, there's some, uh, some opportunities for advancement, if you will. <laughs> sure. Take the list. All right, the bill that has most enraged you in your three-year tenure as legislative director is? 
definitely Marcy's Law. I mean, we'll just let, let listeners go back to that incessant rant um, for me. But yeah, definitely Marcy's Law. Yeah, we did an episode on that uh, last year. And actually, there's a pending court case on on that Marcy's Law ballot question as well. So um, folks, should, should, so yeah. uh, check out our website um, to right. find information. <laughs> All right. So uh, for this one, I got to give a little bit of an explanation. There's an inside joke in our office. Whenever there is a bill that it appears legislators just don't understand, uh, you've coined the phrase or the question, have you read this bill? Uh, we've actually joked about creating a podcast called, have you read this bill? So, <laughs> so uh, last fill in the blank. The bill that best represents the phrase, have you read this bill is? Hands down would be the body cameras bill. So that was a, a much badly needed bill that um, Pennsylvania needed to amend our wiretap act in order to allow body cameras to be used by police officers and in certain circumstances. And so, um, you know, everybody agreed that body cameras could be a good source of accountability and transparency. And, you know, there was a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot more in the bill than just body cameras, mind you. But in this instance, everyone got on board, they wanted to pass it, and it had this really alarming provision that excluded the footage from police-worn body cameras from Pennsylvania's right to know law. So which would make, and it set up this sort of secondary, like just insane Byzantine process of trying to request from the local like entity the footage. And so I think everyone's like, well, I'll support the bill. Well. Okay, why? Well, we need to have more accountability and transparency for police officers. I'm like, that's great. Did you read the bill though? Did you read the bill and the part that says that it is not subject to right to no disclosure? So, um, and as a follow-up, just based on our, one of the former questions, actually uh, Representative Dan Miller has a bill that he's filed that would fix that problem, would put the footage back under um, the right to know law. So that's just a, as a, as a footnote to that response. So Liz, this has been a bit of a session roundup and wrap up, but I realize the session is actually not over. They have a few weeks um, uh, they have scheduled in the fall. Let's just close it out. Is there anything particular you're, you're anticipating or looking at in the fall? Well, we still have our eye on the probation bill. So House Bill 1555 and SB 14, um, and would encourage listeners to contact their representatives and tell them, uh, to oppose those current as as currently amended, both of those bills should they advance, um, and I would say, specifically calling their House representatives because it is now out of the Senate. But um, right, both bills are still in the House. House Bill fifteen fifty five is uh, on the floor of the House, and Senate Bill fourteen is in House Judiciary Committee. Correct. Um, so we're looking at that. I think we are also kind of keeping our eyes open for any uh, changes to the uh, to the election bills that that would help uh, clarify some things and make some important changes in advance of the November election. So those are a few things, but I think as we get near the end, um, opportunities for major things to pass just diminish precipitously. So, but those are probably two of the big things that we're looking at, keeping our eyes on. All right, Liz. Well, thanks. That was a lot of great information. You are our warrior and <laughs> you go in there and scrap with these legislators, which I know is not easy. Um, but thanks for everything you're doing and for your insight. Well, it's a team. It's a team effort. So I appreciate it. Thanks again, Andy. That's ACLUPA Legislative Director Liz Randall.
Visit ACLUPA.org slash legislation for a comprehensive look at the bills we tracked this session at the state legislature. And we have an update about legislation. Liz referenced the expectation that Governor Wolf would veto House Bill 2463. That's a bill ACLUPA supports that would require state agencies to respond to right-to-know requests during a public disaster declaration. However, two days after Liz and I recorded our conversation, Governor Wolf announced that he would allow the legislation to become law. If you like the podcast, please be sure to rate us on your podcast app of choice. That's how more people can find the show. And that is a wrap on episode 46. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover. Until next time, be healthy and be free. Be free.